How far are you willing to carry the cross? Jesus carried his cross all the way to the place where he suffered, bled and died, so that you and I and the whole world of sinners could have the opportunity to be forgiven and enter his eternal kingdom. He is, his is the only cross where God's grace and eternal life can be found. How far would you be willing to carry that cross? Would you be willing to help someone come to the cross of Jesus? What if it meant persecution? Would you be willing to take the cross of Jesus to your friends, to your family, to your co-workers, to your classmates, if it might mean ridicule or rejection for you? How far are you willing to carry His cross to your world? Jesus said, Whosoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As believers, our cross, our duty is to take the cross or message and message of Jesus to the world. It is to live in such a way that people who see us see a reflection of Jesus. Sometimes that might bring ridicule or embarrassment or even persecution. And if so, that's when our faith is tested for authenticity. Today we continue to look at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, his love for Jesus, his passion for the gospel made him one of the greatest men in history and an example of what happens to a life who is touched by the transforming grace of God. If you have your Bibles, I'll be in Acts chapter 21 today. And rather than read that and have us stand and read that together today, I just want you to turn there in your Bibles and let's look at these verses of Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us whatever He wants to say. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for being in this midst, in this place. You're in every heart, and your Holy Spirit is all around us. Thank you, Lord, that we've had the opportunity to lift our voices, to sing praises to your holy name. Thank you, O Father, what we have witnessed thus far. And I pray, dear God, today, now we come to the time when we will open this book of life. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, each one of us, something today that would help us be more of a reflection of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Transforming grace. Now, Paul's journey was now nearly complete. We've been looking at his three missionary journeys and his life as we think about how God transformed his life by his grace. There remained only the 64 miles between Caesarea to the place where his mission had begun, Jerusalem. Accompanying Paul was Luke and those believers who had been designated by the churches to carry the offering they had collected from the Gentile churches Paul had either founded or encouraged. We see those people who go along with Paul from Acts 20 verse 4, Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These all went with Paul, along with that offering they had collected for the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. For this final part of the journey, they probably used pack animals as they were carrying a sizable offering. Look in chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. And after... These days we packed 
and went up to Jerusalem, and also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Luke used the term, the Greek term, apostiutso, for the English word pact. And that was a word commonly used for saddling a horse or loading a pack animal. The King James translate apostiutso as we took up our carriages. Now, the reason that's important is because obviously... The, people, the Gentile churches were generous. Obviously, this, there was a huge offering coming to those persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. And so they must have used not only some packed animals, but some wagons as well. And so they, they headed for Jerusalem with this love offering for the church there. Now, once in Jerusalem, the, the Caesarean Christians led Paul and his delegation to the home of Manasseh, an early disciple, who was one who possibly, the reason it said an early disciple, he could very well have been in the original 120 disciples who were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He could have been one of those. There he and the other Christians received a warm welcome. And they were given a place to stay while in Jerusalem. Paul's third missionary journey was complete. And the brothers, the believers in the Jerusalem church were glad to see him and Luke and these others. Well, the next day, things began to change in Jerusalem. We see it in verses 18 and 19. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Mary and Joseph, but not the son of God. So he is the half-brother of Jesus. And James is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. So on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told him to tell those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. What a great day. Can you imagine being in that audience listening to this spirit-filled apostle share the stories of God's powerful work among the people of Asia and Greece? We, you know, we've read about it. That's what we've been looking at. But nothing would be like sharing the experience of hearing Paul speak personally, firsthand, of God's marvelous grace. James told Paul about the large number of Jews who had believed in Messiah Jesus, but who were still careful to follow the Jewish Old Testament law. There was nothing wrong with that, by the way. The Old Testament law was not destroyed by Jesus. It was fulfilled in Jesus. We're a New Testament people, but folks, those Ten Commandments are still good for us today. Amen? The Jewish feast, they're still good we, we do part of that Passover feast in the Lord's Supper because Christ is our Passover lamb. It's like baptism. It's a good thing. Not because that water washes away our sins, but because it reminds us of what the transforming grace of God does in our lives. Well, James and the church leaders told Paul that these new Jewish believers still wanted to practice the law, and therefore, in order for Paul to have a witness to them, 
he should demonstrate that he was not an enemy of the law and the, and the traditions of the elders. So this is what we see in verse 20 through 24. And when they heard it, when they heard the testimony from Paul of what God had been doing among the Gentiles, they glorified the Lord. And they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law, but they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So, Paul and his company probably arrived in Jerusalem. It was a very difficult day when they arrived because they probably arrived during the spring of 56 or 57 A.D. Remember, Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem in time to celebrate Pentecost. They were there during the procuratorship of Felix. Josephus, the Jewish historian, described this period is one of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest, where regular insurrections arose that Felix immediately suppressed. It was in this fragile climate that Paul arrived, giving testimony to his missionary journeys among the Gentiles. The church elders, led by James, heard the report given by Paul and glorified God for it. The report was so encouraging, de detailing how the Lord Jesus had offered salvation to the Gentiles, how that was proven by the pouring in of the Holy Spirit. And, the, by, and Luke said, when the elders heard it, they glorified the Lord. Doxodson ton theon. In other words, the word doxodson, doxology. We get our English word doxology. Think about how those early Christians felt to hear their faith was not in vain. That the Great Commission, which they had held as sacred, which they staked their lives upon, was being carried out in the world. They were persecuted in Jerusalem, but the gospel was being preached. They were not alone. And Paul brought with him that evidence, money. Offerings collected by the Gentile believers to help their fellow brothers and sisters being persecuted in, by the Jews and the Romans in Jerusalem. For the Jerusalem church, it was a reason for a doxology to praise God from whom all blessings flow. But in the middle of the doxology, the elders reminded Paul that he had returned to a volatile place, a place where the Jews who once called for our Savior's crucifixion still had no love for his followers. So thus Paul's presence in Jerusalem presented both a blessing and a challenge. While the testimony of God working among, among the Gentiles was certainly a reason to rejoice. Some of the Jewish believers had heard that Paul was teaching that the Jews had been, who had been dispersed among the Gentiles did not need to keep the law or their traditions. James, James and the elders had a plan. For Jewish, con four Jewish converts had taken upon themselves a Nazarite vow 
to prove their dedication to God. And during this vow, the men had not cut their hair nor shaved for at least 30 days. They were nearing the end of the vow in which they would enter the temple, cut their hair, burn their hair as an offering to God, and then offer several expensive sacrifices, a male and female lamb, a ram, cereal, and drink offerings. James and the elders suggested that if Paul would pay their expenses, he would make his respect for the law known before the Jews in Jerusalem. Now let's remember that during Paul's ministry, he often faced those Jews who insisted that the law was necessary for salvation. Paul adamantly opposed this belief, insisting that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ, nothing more, nothing less. Paul wrote, he wrote, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For by grace have you been saved. Read this with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, in Christ, Paul saw all the walls broken down. God's grace through, through Christ made no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. All were sinners needing salvation through the cross of Christ. Notice what he said. Let's read this next verse again. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. See, as Paul traveled the Gentile world, a world where the Jews were dispersed and practicing the Torah, and the Gentiles were being saved by the preaching of the gospel, Paul made it clear that Christ was everything, and that in Him the Jew did not have to become a Gentile, and the Gentile did not have to become a Jew. Thus, the Jewish believers could certainly practice the traditions of the elders as long as they did not rely upon those traditions for salvation, while the Gentiles did not have to adhere to the Old Testament traditions. Now James and the Jewish elders had already met and they reminded Paul of the letter they had sent to the Gentiles affirming that the Gentiles were not bound by the rituals of the law. Still, they felt that this act of consecration where Paul would join these Jews who had made that vow, that that act of consecration would be important for Paul to be able to minister to those Jewish converts. We see in verse 25 and 26. And, but concerning, they said, the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, not all his Old Testament traditions, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, you see. And the next day, having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, in which time an offering should be made for each one of them. He joined this vow. You see, Paul was certainly ready to be a Jew to the Jews. He readily accepted the job of financing the four Jews as they completed their Nazarite vow. And in doing so, he would prove his respect for the law and dispel the rumors about him that had been floating. Paul knew how to separate the main things from the minor things, and so should 
we. You see, from time to time, we're going to meet other Christians who have differences of opinion about certain practices of their faith. I don't mean major doctrinal issues. I mean certain practices. As mature believers, we must decide what is most important to the kingdom. We must do what is necessary to spread the gospel to a world that is completely enslaved by Satan and evil. And that is the main point, folks. We must remember that the main point for God is redemption, not not worship. You see, worship follows redemption. People get that confused sometimes. Jesus did not come into the world so that we could worship God as we please. Jesus came into the world so that we could be forgiven and know God. His way. I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven and we're up there in the worship service there. I do. Our, our constant is this. It is God's Word. The Bible. To guide us. That's what we need. The Word of God tells us how we should live. How we should love God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves. When Paul took that oath in Jerusalem, it was because he loved his neighbor as himself. He was obeying Jesus' most important rule of love through the grace of God. Do you think Paul really had to be part of this Jewish vow? Of course he didn't. When Paul walked into Jerusalem, as far as I'm concerned, in walked the most powerful man of faith that there was alive on the planet at that time. No one, not even James and the elders in Jerusalem, had been used by God so much as Paul. God used Paul to plant churches all over the Gentile world. And his efforts, his faith, his love for Jesus is the reason you and I who are Gentiles today have received the gospel. Paul did not need to take some vow in Jerusalem to prove his loyalty to Christ and the Word of God. Paul lived the Word of God. Still, he would do what it took to reach these Jews with the gospel. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. Why can Christians today not get together for the gospel's sake. Friends, let me tell you something. America's in a spiritual mess. We're not the same country we were back in 1952. Did you know that? In 60 years, we've gone from being one nation under God to being a divided nation without God. Research shows we in America are now living in a post-Christian culture, which means a culture today does not care about God. I know most Americans would say, well, I do believe in God. But I'm talking about a Christian nation, a Christian mindset. We've allowed the devil to brainwash a whole generation of people so that a generation of leaders is now teaching children to believe that there is no God, that there is no room, no need for an antiquated God religion. Christians have allowed this to happen because we didn't work together to choose leaders who would protect our Christian values. And we're all to blame, by the way. Christians need to band together. 
and stand together if we're going to ever restore spiritual integrity to America. I don't care if you, listen, I don't care if you look differently from me or if you worship differently from me. If you believe that salvation is by the transforming grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you uphold the same values which made our nation great in the first place, values such as the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman, then I'll stand beside you and do my part in choosing new leaders to point America back to God. And that's what we need to do today, church. The church needs to stand together. The old hymn that we used to sing said, Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. All one body we, one in faith and spirit, one eternally. Crowns and thrones may perish. Kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain gates of hell can never against the church prevail we have christ on promise which can never fail onward christian soldier sing with me marching as to war with the cross of jesus going on before ultimately jesus will prevail he will return to earth and he will conquer Satan and rid this earth of evil. But in the meantime, the church today is just like the church in Paul's day. It's vulnerable to attack and persecution. And we are in a war. It's a war against evil. The Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem. He tried to appease the Jewish Christ haters by taking a vow. Well, let's see where that got him. Verse 27. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple. And he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought in to the temple. <laughs> Paul had about seven days in Jerusalem without an incident. But as we've seen throughout our study, trouble seemed to follow Paul. In fact, I've heard it said that if you're a Christian and the devil's not opposing you, look out because you're probably going the same way he is. Jews from Asia, probably coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And from some of the places where Paul had visited, brought with them an evil report against Paul, lies and more lies. Because that, that's not uh, surprising because those people were very evil. They called themselves the people of God. They were the children of Abraham, the father of faith. They had Moses who knew God personally and gave them the, his law. But, but these Orthodox Jews respect, rejected the Messiah of whom Moses prophesied. They had Isaiah and the prophets, but rejected the Christ who was wounded for their transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. They were in Jerusalem, the city of David, the king through whom Jesus, the Messiah, was born, and yet they rejected him and anyone who came preaching the gospel, especially Paul. So it didn't take long for the evil propagated by these, by these uh, visiting uh, Jews to, to uh, stir up the whole Jewish population into some kind of feeding frenzy. Verse 30, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they, the city stopped beating Paul. Well, nice people, weren't they? They were in the temple praying and worshiping one minute and then dragging Paul 
out of the temple and beating him mercilessly the next. These fine, upstanding people would have killed Paul if the Romans had not rescued him. Friends, I just have to say it. I'm so sick and tired of hearing people today in this modern culture, whether it be celebrities or politicians, use the name of God like it's some kind of badge. They put it on and take it off whenever it suits their selfish purposes. Friends, real Christianity is not that way. You, are, you either accept Jesus and you wear Him all the time or else you don't wear Him at all. You cannot be a real Christian one minute and live like the devil the next minute. You cannot love Jesus and love evil. At the same time, John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. These people in Jerusalem that day who tried to kill Paul consider themselves good people. What do you think? The grace of God that brings salvation, friends, is a transforming grace. When a person has been transformed from a child of the devil to a child of God, that person has a desire to do the right thing, not the wrong thing. A person who has truly been changed by God's transforming grace is not going to be trying to murder people, whether big or small. They're not going to try to change God's natural order and teach a little boy that he can be a, little, a, a girl or a little girl that he, she can be a boy. They're not going to try to stop people from praying and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. People who have been transformed by the gospel do the will of God. And those who are not doing the will of God are not true followers of Christ. Jesus said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Therefore, by their lips you will know them. By their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Good fruit, bad fruit, follower of Christ, follower of the devil. We know them by their fruit. True believers will always stand out in a crowd of evil. Look at Paul. Good fruit, sharing the message of Jesus. Trying to be a good witness to the Jews. One man against a mob of evildoers. One man with good fruit. The fruit of grace, peace, love, salvation. And the mob, the fruit of jealousy, hatred, violence, murder. Can you picture this angry, vicious mob dragging Paul across the ground? Trying to silence him by beating him to death. How disgusting. A whole city following Satan. While one man, transformed by God's grace, follows in the footsteps of Jesus. Verse 33, Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some of the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be, Paul to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, because he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Did you notice the mark of Satan in this bunch? Lies, confusion, hatred. These are the characteristics of a Satan follower. The Roman commander wanted to know why Paul was being beaten and why the people were so violent. And what did they answer? Some said one thing and some another thing. But no one said the truth. When you don't have Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, all you have in your heart is confusion, lies, and destruction. But Paul... He was the real deal. True child of God. And even when he was being lied about, beaten, and almost murdered, he still cared about the souls of those who were his abusers. Look at verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? The commander replied, Can you speak Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out of, of, into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when the commander gave him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with the sand of the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they all kept the more silent. What will Paul say to this ugly, ugly mob? I've listed three things. What do you think? A, he, would he say, I think there's been some mistake. I was just passing through, and if you'll let me go, I'll leave your fair city and never bother you again. Will he say, B, I hate you all, and I hope you all burn in the fires of hell for what you did to me and Jesus my Savior. Or will he say, C, the Christ who transformed my life can transform yours. Please let me share his good news with you. Of course, we know the answer because unlike many today who just pretend to be good people, Paul was genuine. He was a genuine, born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And the Christ who lived in Paul gave him a passion to share the gospel, even with those who hated him. So let's just look at his message as we wrap up here. Verse 3. He said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way, Christianity, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting and those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me so I said what shall I do Lord and the Lord said to me arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all things which you're appointed which are appointed for you to do and since I cannot see for the glory of the light being led by the hand of those who were with me I came into Damascus then a certain Ananias a devout man according to the law having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there came to me and he stood and said to me brother Saul receive your sight and at that same hour I looked up at him and then he said the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. To, be a, to, a, to a hateful mob watching and listening, a mob that tried to kill Paul, he shared the message of how Jesus had, the Jesus whom they had crucified in that city, had risen and appeared to him on the road to Damascus. The Christ who he had once hated so much transformed his life and called him to preach the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead to give us eternal life, and lives to save all who will repent of their sins and call upon Him by faith. He went on. 
Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, Jesus said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And when Paul could have angrily shouted at the Jews, this mob that had tried to kill him, he calmly introduced him to Jesus. Unlike the hateful enemies of Christ, Paul had a genuine desire, a passion to see all people come to know and love his Savior. And how did they receive that? Verse 22, And they listened to him until this word, and they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that they might know, so that he might know why they had shouted these things against him. Did you hear those angry screams? Get rid of this man! He's not fit to live! Kind of sounds like another incident where an innocent man was falsely accused and his life was drained from him on an old rugged cross while the crowd shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Many of those Jews may have been there, folks. They may have called out for the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet even from the cross, our Lord prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was right. They didn't know what they were doing because they were under the spell of Satan. Friends, the grace of God which brings salvation brings with it the heart of Jesus. It brings with it a desire for all men to be saved. It says to a lost world, even if I have to give my life for you to be saved, It's worth it. That's what God's transforming grace does. It overcomes sin, Satan, hatred, ridicule, even persecution for the opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ and His kingdom. It gives us a courageous faith, an enduring faith that will stand for Jesus when everything else is collapsing. That's because the grace of God transforms the heart, the spirit of man, so that He's a new creation filled with the Spirit of God. And that's our grace principle today. Let's read it together. God's grace transforms our hearts and gives us faith to overcome all enemies. Just look at what Paul overcame, folks, for the opportunity to share the the news of Jesus. He overcame a terrible abuse, dragged across the ground, beaten violently. He overcame a real tendency to hate his violent enemies. He overcame intense fears. His life was in jeopardy. He overcame the temptation to give up and abandon his mission. And still, as he was carried before the Roman commander, Paul shared the gospel with those who hated him. Friends, let me tell you something. If you're going to be a true reflection of Jesus, you have to overcome evil with good. We don't have to love the evil that people are doing around us. In fact, we should hate the evil. But we must love those for whom Jesus died. We must love them. No matter the outcome, Paul knew how to live and Paul knew how to die. And he was willing to die for his Savior and his King if it meant he would be willing to have, an, he would have the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. Folks, let me tell you something. They overcame Paul's body, but they could not overcome his spirit. What about you? They could not overcome his faith. What about you? Is there someone who's hurt you so bad that you hate them, 
then Satan and evil has overcome you. Paul was willing to offer his enemies Jesus. And so, when he had the opportunity, he made it count. He risked everything for the gospel. Beaten and bloody, Paul would not give up on his promise to follow Jesus all the way as a messenger of his transforming grace. And as he said to Philip and those other Christians, as they begged him not to go to Jerusalem, Paul said, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to read that with me. I want you to read it, and I want you to think, could this be my te- is this my testimony? Read it. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you really say that? The RMS Empress of Ireland was a Scottish-built ocean liner that sank near the mouth of the St. Lawrence River in Canada following a collision in thick fog with the Norwegian Storstad in the early hours of May 29, 1914. As the ship began to sink in the cold Atlantic Ocean, it was discovered that there were not enough life belts on board for all the passengers. On that ship were 130 Salvation Army officers. 109 were drowned, and not one body that was picked up had a life belt. The few survivors told how the Salvation Army Christians took off their own life belts and strapped them even upon, upon everybody, even the strongest men, saying, I can die better than you can. And from the deck of that ship was demonstrated what it means to live with that revelation in our own lives. I can die better than you can. Can you say that to a lost person today? Would you bow with me? Paul was willing, folks, to give up everything, even his life for the name of Jesus. What are you willing to give that others may know the transforming power of God's grace? Folks, according to the North American Mission Board, there are 192 million lost people in America. And that, gr- that grows by 2 million people every year. Did you hear that? 192 million. Do you know any of those? What, who do you know that's sinking, dying without Christ? What would you give? What would you be willing to give that they might be saved? We've seen Paul's faith demonstrating what he endured. How, how close is your passion for Jesus to Paul's passion? When the people you know look at you, what do they see? Do they see a genuine, committed follower of Jesus Christ, a good tree doing the will of your Father in heaven? Or do they see a bad tree with rotten fruit? Maybe you need to ask Jesus to come into your life. You're through playing Christian. You're through just saying, I'm wearing a God badge. You're, You're ready. And Jesus has tugged your heart today, no matter if you're young or old but you don't really have Jesus in your life. Pray today with all your heart and mean it and say, Jesus, I am so sorry. I've been like those Jews in Jerusalem. I have been doing bad, claiming to be good. Forgive me, Jesus. 
Forgive me for all my sins. I believe you died on the cross. You gave everything for me. You shed your blood. You suffered horribly. You gave your life for mine. Please forgive me, Jesus, for every evil thing in my life. Come into my life. Save me. Wash me clean. Start producing good fruit in me. I want to be a reflection of you, Jesus, from this day forward. I don't want the people around me to see me. I want them to see you. Help me forgive those who have been evil to me. No matter what, help me overcome evil with good. Help me stand for you, Jesus. Help me be willing to risk embarrassment or ridicule. I commit my life to you today. You're my Savior. I'll say it till I die. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. If you prayed that prayer, it's the greatest thing you can pray. While we're singing, I'll be at the front. The cameras will be off. And if you'd like for me to pray for you, I'll be glad to pray for you. Father, thank you for what we've seen in your word today. Your word is powerful. And Lord, we've seen this man, Paul, who loved you with all his heart. He demonstrated that. Father, help us demonstrate our love for you to a lost and dying world and make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing, Brother Steve. Stand with us as we sing, I Surrender All.